The term disinformation is now commonplace in American social and political discourse, but that was not always the case. Like many other terms and concepts, it spread at an astonishing rate after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Prior to that, it was a term generally confined to national security and intelligence lingo, which maintained its traditional definition, which was false information intended to mislead, typically issued or planted deliberately by a hostile foreign government or organization. Well, my how that definition has expanded, as it now is used to refer to generally any, any allegedly false claim, the insinuation being that if a person puts out an inaccurate statement, they're not just telling a lie, but doing so for a deliberate, pernicious political purpose. The fight against disinformation now also supports an entire national security structure, a structure that was once aimed at combating ISIS and foreign intel, but is now aimed internally against the government's own citizens. Whether you voted for Donald Trump in 2016, have suspicions about the COVID virus originally leaking from a lab, or elected not to take the COVID-19 vaccine for one reason or another, there's now an entire apparatus in place between the national security systems, the social media companies, billionaire finance think tanks and NGOs, and private contractors aligned against you as either a purveyor of disinformation or a gullible victim of it. My guest today recently released a piece documenting this apparatus in comprehensive detail. His name is Jacob Siegel. He's a senior editor at Tablet Magazine, and the piece was called A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, a topic that uh, kind of canvases a lot of things that have occurred in American society and, national, uh, and international discourse over the last few years. I mean, what was the catalyst that, that, you know, uh, that kind of triggered you to write this story now um, and to cover as much ground as opposed to one of the particular prongs of the disinformation apparatus that's arisen over the past, uh, let's call it seven years? Well, I, I tried to write more limited versions of the piece. And in fact, there are, <clears throat> I've written a number of times in uh, the past few years about aspects of disinformation. I wrote a piece for Tablet last year on the fact-checking industry. <clears throat> Excuse me, the fact-checking, modern fact-checking apparatus is essentially mm-hmm. part of the counter dis- or, or of the the you know nominally counter disinformation complex it's all really part of the same thing so um and I, I wrote a piece on elon musk buying twitter and how this had positioned him as this sort of counter disinformation elite uh so I, I basically the short version is that i did write some things but when i tried to write the overall the kind of framework piece that explained how it fit together when i tried to do smaller versions of that i just i I, it was so big i couldn't make it work and Mm -hmm. um before long i wound up with this sprawling thirteen thousand word piece because it was really the only way i could figure out how to do it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i want to read a little bit from that sprawling thirteen thousand word piece um, because i think it'll help frame some of this discussion for the audience um as you mentioned, by conflating the anti-establishment politics of domestic populists with acts of war by foreign en- enemies, it justified turning weapons of war against American citizens. This is how the government created the war against disinformation and became the great moral crusade of its time. CIA officers at Langley came to share a cause with hip young journalists in Brooklyn, progressive nonprofits in D.C., George Soros-funded think tanks in Prague, racial equity consultants, private equity consultants, tech company staffers in Sil- Silicon Valley, and failed British royals. Never Trump Republicans joined forces with the Democratic National Committee, which declared online disinformation a whole-of-society problem that requires a whole-of-society response. A state organized on the principle that it exists to protect the sovereign rights of individuals is replaced by a digital leviathan that wields power through opaque algorithms and the manipulation of digital swarms. So that 
that censorship regime and that digital leviathan. You say it traces back, and this is something that people who may be somewhat cognizant of the government's war against disinformation over the during the Trump era doesn't realize that it does somewhat uh, trace back to just before the Trump era to 2014 um, and the battle against ISIS and some learnings and, and uh, realizations from the uh, uh, the overthrow of the Ukrainian government in 2014 and Putin's invasion of Crimea. Um, maybe if you could describe how the kind of seeds of the current disinformation apparatus um, came out of those, you know, what was acknowledged or, or noticed at that time. Sure. Well, on one level, it grows out of the American security state, which has a mm -hmm an older provenance and really actually emerges initially uh, after World War One, uh, you know, under the, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, and then experiences its first great growth after World War Two during the Cold War, which is when the modern U.S. security bureaucracy, the, the alphabet of intelligence agencies we now have, that's what establishes the foundation of the modern U.S. security state is that that longer history, the, the counter disinformation provides a kind of unifying purpose and a unifying architecture and a raison d'etre and a, an engine of expansion, radical expansion to that security state in the same way mm -hmm. that the fight against communism had in the same way that the fight against terrorism the, the security state always needs that kind of raison d'etre. So you have the security state. And then what happens in 2014 is uh, there are three three very significant uh, events that occur in relation to this. There is Russia's invasion of Crimea. There are the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine, where there's a, a U.S.-backed uh, you know protest movement, Euromaidan, uh, helping to depose the Russian-supported Ukrainian leader, and Russia is backing the opposition there. And then finally, you have ISIS's capture of Mosul, the city in northern Iraq, where it, it then declares its caliphate. And what all three of those have in common is that in the eyes of the NATO defense establishment, led by the U.S., but not exclusively the U.S., this is a uh, uh, a kind of opinion that's widely shared by NATO people. What all three of those events have in common is that social media was the determinative weapon in all three of them. So all mm -hmm. three of these battles, as it were, uh, were not simply influenced by the internet or influenced by social media. Uh, in the eyes of the NATO defense establishment, it appeared that social media had played a crucial role and that therefore whoever controlled social media was in a position to determine the winner of future battles. And you can read the white papers from 2014 making these arguments. And this is when you start to get this, uh, the, the literature around hybrid war theory, mm -hmm. which is, expresses this idea, hybrid war referring technically just to warfare that is an admixture of conventional tactics, uh, unconventional tactics, meaning, you know, ununiformed uh, Russian mercenaries blending in with Russian uniformed troops. But it, in practice also refers to uh, a mixture of kinetic operations, meaning, you know, physical 
conventional military operations and digital operations, cyber operations. So mm -hmm. the idea being that ISIS in Iraq, for instance, had this very active social media campaign, which it used not only to broadcast its exploits and to attract new recruits, but also to demoralize its enemies in Iraq. Mm -hmm. So by constantly tweeting these incredibly lurid, disturbing images of beheadings and of really just uh, really saturating a certain space on Twitter in particular with the most gruesome images possible, they were sending a message uh, to the remaining resistance forces in Iraq saying, you know, this is what's going to happen. And as it was seen at the time, and I should say that, you know, I was persuaded by this argument myself at the time, um, it seemed like this really was having a, a very crucial effect. And Russia was doing the same thing on an even larger scale mm -hmm. in Crimea and in Ukraine, but also in the other sort of border territories in the Baltics, uh, border countries that former Soviet countries that Russia was trying to exert its influence over. Mm -hmm. And essentially, also, ISIS was using the Internet as a uh, as a recruiting tool at the time. And I feel like uh, it was the the irony was noted that this group that seemingly wanted to take us back to a, a pre-industrial past was using uh, all the facets of the modern Internet as a recruiting tool. And they, they were both, you know, one um, uh, incredibly reactionary, but, you know, using the tools that, that we had put out into the universe against us. And that that was seemed like the great realization at the time. Yeah, that's right. And what it what it ended up leading to inside the U.S. defense establishment were these efforts to create um, counter messaging. Mm -hmm. So this is re really the as you mentioned initially at the start of this segment, this is really where the seeds of the modern war against disinformation are planted, because the agency inside the U.S. government that led this war against disinformation that um you know, as you read in that excerpt from my piece, unites CIA officers with journalists in Brooklyn and becomes this whole of society effort. Where that started was with the State Department called the Global Engagement Center, mm -hmm. which uh, Obama created to be the hub of the counter disinformation um, campaign. But before it was called the Global Engagement Center, that same State Department agency, which was led by a, a former Navy SEAL named Michael Lumpkin, who is mm -hmm. a you know a counterterrorism veteran inside the U.S. military and government, that same agency was a counter messaging agency, strategic counter messaging agency, whose mission was specifically to counter ISIS messaging. The idea being that. You know, ISIS has its uh, influence and in information operations on social media. So the, the U.S. will do the same. And, uh, you know, there are some famous examples of the U.S. trying to uh, essentially sort of troll or counter troll ISIS and it not working out very well. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there were some even lesser known programs, um, you know, essentially involving uh, sort of U.S. bots, the same things that. Um, you know, we later accused Russia of doing that Russia did do to some extent. The U.S. was doing in the campaign against ISIS using bots to try and discredit uh, ISIS accounts online. Mm -hmm. And so that global uh, engagement center 
that seems to play, you know, something I actually want to go back just another step here. Because then, in terms of the, the internet as a tool for uh, a, 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 that the political or or um, the results of you know political campaigns or wars or other international events are a result of what goes on on social media. Um, that also was originally conceived of in 2008 when the Obama campaign, uh, Barack Obama's presidential campaign, was able to use the internet and its tools and Facebook um, to great effect. And it was considered a, a great tool of democracy and pro progress. And then we saw that uh, the, the tools of the Internet used in the Arab Spring in 2010. Uh, and the original notions of the Internet and social media, with it, these would be democratizing and were forces for good. Um, and that then contrasts with the use of these social media tools that yielded different results, or at least uh, who even says that they're different results. But the election of Donald Trump, um, it seemingly the uh, uh, results that were satisfied to a different segment of the population than the results of the Obama election. But originally, you know, all these people that, that pop up uh, seven or eight years later trying to institute all, all these censorship measures and, you know, kind of meld the intelligence apparatus with the social media apparatus. And they originally were, were totally in favor of a free and open Internet in 2008 when the Obama uh, Obama campaign used it, you know, used it effectively. Is that correct? Well, certainly that's true of the public political officials. So Hillary Clinton is the prime example of this. When Hillary Clinton was running the State Department, she led the Internet freedom agenda. So when you mm -hmm. talk about uh, social media being seen as this revolutionary democratizing tool during the Arab Spring, that was Clinton's State Department um, that was leading that charge. And one of her uh, deputies famously, you know, compares social media to Che Guevara is a kind of funny comparison to make, but he means yeah. it in a in a complimentary way. And uh, this is this is the legacy of the Clinton State Department. So th this is certainly true of Clinton, right? That she is promoting the internet as a an emancipatory tool in mm -hmm. 2011, 2012, and then in 2016 is declaring the internet and social media in particular an enemy of civilization because all of a sudden it's turned against her. Mm -hmm. When you get to the intelligence and national security officials, it's a bit more complicated um, insofar as for them, because they're less moralizing about it initially, and they're, they're, they don't have to make these public statements, they're not running public diplomatic efforts the way Clinton is, they can be more honest and they're not saying, hey, the Internet is great because it's empowering uh, activists in the Arab Spring. What they're saying all along is the Internet is the is the key piece of terrain uh, for controlling the battlefield, for controlling, um, you know, determining who is going to win in a conflict. So that the legacy is mixed in that sense. But what they have in common is, you know, both the public facing Internet freedom agenda people, such as Clinton, but as you mentioned, also Barack Obama, because he famously uses Facebook as a key to his campaign efforts. You know, Facebook is bragging about this. Google is bragging about its role in helping to get Obama elected. These are seen as forces for good because they're getting enlightened people elected. Um, but the 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 through line, the common thread is that it is understood that this is how political and military contests are won and lost. Now, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. their belief anyway. 
you know, and and that needs to be challenged. It's not necessarily true, but it becomes the sort of key unifying belief is whoever controls the Internet controls society and and really determines the outcome of conflict. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of leads us to the Donald Trump situation where in trying to conceive of an explanation for why Donald Trump was successful in 2016, the the the. explanation that they land on is that the Russian disinformation on the internet, right? That that was the simple kind of unifying, easy explanation for why American citizens got the decision wrong in 2016. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it is the, they throw a lot of, you know, explanations, uh, you know, excuses, explanations. There are a lot of reasons thrown out to, Anything really other than trying to honestly interrogate the source of Donald Trump's appeal to American voters. Um, But this is the one they land on, and it becomes the one that everyone can agree on because it has both such tremendous explanatory power. You know, you don't have to prove it. You can throw out all of this spurious evidence and that's enough suggesting Russia hacked the election. The press will go along with it. The intelligence agencies um, uh, will will go along with it, which allows the press to go along with it without actually ever proving their case. And of course, eventually this is all disproved. uh, As we now know, it was not the case that Russia hacked the 2016 election, but it has this tremendous explanatory power on the one hand. And on the other hand, it is the supreme form of leverage over the various social media companies and and commanding heights of the internet that all of these people have already decided are the key to political power. Mm-hmm. It, it, essentially, and originally, right after the 2016 election, Zuckerberg denied this. Zuckerberg said, well, wait a second, we're not to blame. Listen, we're just uh, people are going to believe what they're going to believe. They're going to get access to various pieces of information uh, and ingest them or hold them up to various degrees of scrutiny, regardless of where they encounter it. And hey, you know, we're, we're just the canvas. I mean, we, we are not you cannot say that, you know, the, the way that we operate our platform is the cause is is the determinative that the results are a function of how we operate this platform. But eventually he gives into the pressure, it appears. Yeah, I mean, eventually it takes about a week. That's how <laughs> it, it literally it takes a week. I believe it's uh, he I think he issues that statement. It's in my piece, but I think he issues that statement on November 9th. And then by November 17th, something like that, he's done a complete 180. And it, it's not just that Zuckerberg is saying this in a kind of defensive way, though, of course, he is saying in a defensive way. He's also citing, he's saying, look, we've looked at the back end on Facebook. We looked at the ad purchases. We know what the evidence is of foreign manipulation at scale. And I'm telling you, as the CEO of Facebook, that it didn't occur. Now, he could have been lying. I, you know, Obviously, he had reason to lie. But the crucial thing is that nobody ever proves that he's lying. Yeah. And in um, fact, all the evidence that comes out over the next few years seems to su- support his initial initial statement. That's right, including from some of the various sources that are indicting him and lambasting him initially. So, you know, it, 
uh, one of the examples that I cite in the piece is the the Washington Post the day after the election runs a story about Facebook's role, or it's, it might not be the day, the week after the election runs a story about Facebook's role in in uh, allowing Russian trolls and Russian ad purchases to influence American voters. And then uh, just you know earlier this year they ran a, that was on a, a, a you know a big. Uh, feature prominently featured story in 2016 and then just earlier this year they ran like a little addendum in their uh in one of their uh pull away type sections saying ah you know actually a new report suggests that, that it had no effect that russian troll operations had minimal or no effect so and it's not to single out the washington post this is the same story across the american press you can read Jeff Gerth's account of this in uh, the Columbia Journalism Review. He gives a pretty comprehensive account of focusing on the press's role in this. But to come back, coming back to Zuckerberg for a second. So what happens is that the, the Clinton campaign and Clinton's digital strategist says this explicitly. The Clinton campaign determines this is where we lost. Right. We lost on Facebook, essentially. We lost on social media. So. There were alternative explanations. You know, maybe you lost because you didn't campaign in the upper Midwest. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's what Bill Clinton was saying, actually. Yeah. But no, they they decide the key terrain is not where American voters actually live, upper Midwest, wherever else. Um, it's not traditional kinds of political coalition building the failure there. The failure is not sufficiently controlling the discourse on social media. So they start to spread this message as soon as Clinton loses. Of course, there's already a lot of this being pumped out prior to Clinton losing with fake news and all that, but it becomes the mantra, the mantra of the American ruling party after Trump wins. And as you mentioned, Zuckerberg says, no, that's not the case. And then there is this unbelievable, just a truly extraordinary, extraordinary coordinated pressure campaign. So you have Clinton officials, you have former national security officials. And then, you know, even more extraordinarily in some ways, you have the appearance of these seemingly objective third party institutions mm-hmm. like the International Fact Checking Network, which yep. I, yep. I wrote about at length last year, which presents itself as this uh, well-established fact checking body that is you know, like a, essentially an army of librarians and we're we're here and we're going to they <laughs> they, they publish an open letter yeah, saying yeah. to Zuckerberg, we're here to lend ourselves to provide this service to you, you know, God. like like an armed sentry to protect Facebook from the invasion of disinformation. And um they plant this story in Politico. Politico runs it. They don't really dig into it. And Zuckerberg accepts is the kind of punchline. And then, you know, the the kind of coup de grace, Obama issues his statement. Um, Again, it's within two weeks after the election, Obama issues a statement basically saying, you know, the the fake news on Facebook uh, swung the election. And then two days later, Zuckerberg does the 180 and they let in the fact checkers. He he not only welcomes in the fact checkers, he welcomes in. This is what opens the door in Facebook in a significant way to allow the influx of government regulators. So some of those government regulators sort of operate by proxy through organizations like the International Fact Checking Network, which is an initiative of the Pointer Institute, which is funded by 
you know, uh, top Democratic Party funders and operates essentially as much of the NGO and nonprofit space does as an auxiliary of partisan billionaires. In this case, people like Reid Hoffman. Uh, International Fact Checking Network is also receiving some money directly from the GEC. Um, so, so you have you have those kinds of you know, government forces by proxy, but then it's also what opens the door to this out and out explicit coordination between government agencies, the FBI's foreign uh, influence task force, for instance, and the social media companies. That's where it starts immediately mm-hmm. after the election, when this coordinated pressure campaign convinces Zuckerberg that he has to cave because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to. He doesn't. Yeah. Th- this is not what Zuckerberg wants to happen. And, you know, it's actually pretty fascinating. I'm very hard on the the social media companies in the piece and these officials who allowed this to happen. But the truth is that if you look at the internal correspondence that has come out through most notably the Twitter files, but also some active lawsuits, you'll see that there really was some resistance from Absolutely. officials inside the social media companies. And and this is to be clear, this is not pro-Trump officials, right? Yeah. Like good, yes. good luck finding an openly pro-Trump official at Facebook. This is for the most part, you know, center left or, or sort of bog standard liberal progressives who are who simply want to retain some autonomy and control over these these platforms who understand that mass you know secret mass censorship is uh problematic to say the least and who really do offer some resistance but that resistance is overcome and it all starts there in the immediate aftermath of the election when this campaign uh is initiated to take control over the social media platforms, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what happened. And and another key facet of that, apparently two weeks before Trump took office, Barack Obama still in the seat of the presidency, um, an ICA, Intelligence Community Assessment, was issued um, essentially in in furtherance of all this, the idea that the election was a result of Russia or some other foreign actor disinformation um, and failure on censorship and content moderation. um, And that ICA uh, once again in the in in kind of acknowledging the con- it, you know you talk about hybrid warfare but kind of the hybridization of the national security establishment and the social media companies and then becoming almost quasi governmental actors because they're acting at the instruction and behest of the government and the intelligence community in that ICA um, it appears that it, it was you know uh, it was a complete clown show it was kind of a uh, 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 there's a guy named John Brennan who was the d- director of the CIA under Barack Obama. Um, he's made, you know, uh, been, it's been no secret at this point that he's very uh, uh, sympathetic to the causes of liberal political actors and very unsympathetic to those of Republicans and Donald Trump in particular. And a lot of uh, a lot of baseless accusations made by him over the years. But this was an ICA that was staffed um, at the behest of Brennan and didn't seem to cover, you know, you have a ton of personnel that's in in the uh, national security establishment that's incredibly informed on Russian affairs. Um, Those people do not end up being staffed staffed on the ICA. Um, And it seems to be just a number of those under the thumb of John Brennan. And it seems that that ICA was uh, was was entirely corrupt. Yeah, no, that's right. It was a political product. So the the purpose of an ICA, an intelligence community assessment, is to 
survey the 17 different intelligence agencies and present the consensus view or you know or or to present a a view that reflects the opinions of the various relevant actors so that you're not getting um not only are you not getting one point of view or or one ideological slant as it might be but also so that you're not getting agency biases right so it's supposed to overcome agency biases not just partisan or ideological bias but in this case as you point out brennan who's an obama appointee who later goes on to become what he is now which is an msnbc analyst a yep, job yep, he's, yep. he's better suited for um he's actually he's well qualified to be an msnbc analyst he was not such a, a good cia chief Mm-hmm. Um, Brennan effectively makes this his own product. So he, uh, there are, uh, as we later find out, both through uh, a, a subsequent House investigation and also testimony from Mike Pompeo, Brennan excludes the accounts from intelligence officials, Russia experts inside the intelligence community who conclude that rather than preferring uh, Donald Trump and intervening in the 2016 election to help Donald Trump get elected, which is the the sort of foundational false yet foundational claim that goes into the ICA. And that's what then can be cited in count countless subsequent media reports that can point to the ICA to legitimate their own claims that Trump is a Putin agent. And really, that that is a absolutely critical document mm-hmm. um, that uses the Steele dossier. Um, so, you know, it's Brennan who makes the decision, Pompeo says, to use the Steele dossier, the totally spurious Steele dossier yeah. that was largely based on testimony from uh, you know, not even from actual Russian sources. Steele was talking to Danchenko, is a DC think tank employee. Extraordinary stuff. But and it was a paid for. Pri- it was a yeah. It was a paid for private document. I mean, Christopher Steele, right. like anybody else, just like someone who you hire to paint your house, was trying to make sure that he delivered the service that he was being paid for. And he certainly did. And he certainly did. But you know. It, you would think that maybe a higher level of that service, you would at least talk to some Russians. But in Steele's case, you know, he's hired in this mercenary manner by Perkins Coy and, and Fusion GPS through the Clinton campaign. And but his sources, his Kremlin sources, you know, it's incredible. They work in Washington, D.C. They're D.C. think bank employees. Um, so are the primary source. So so that's the ICA that Brennan produces, and he excludes the account from Russia experts who say that actually Putin preferred Clinton because yes. he was the more predictable, the well, more predictable he, candidate. And more prominently, I believe, every he ex- and this this has been well documented that everybody ignored, and I think is the key facet to understanding this. Nobody, including Vladimir Putin, thought Trump was going to win. He thought right. Clinton was going to win. Right. That's right. Everything he did was with that result in mind. He had he thought there's no he thought there was no legitimate chance that Trump was going to win. Right. Uh, You know, he was he was wrong in the same way that uh, a lot of other people were wrong. But it it made sense at the time to assume you bet on the more likely winner. And you also you bet on the the more predictable political actor. Um, 
And there was good reason for Putin to think that uh, a Clinton White House would have been more amenable to its own priorities, not because Clinton was a Putin agent, um, but because, you know, they understood sort of how to grease those wheels, whereas Trump was something new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, and also there was a case being made that, you know, to the extent that there were pro-Trump, there there was pro-Trump commentary or activities emanating from the Kremlin, it was really to damage Hillary Clinton for, you know, or, or uh, kind of make the the uh, ice under her feet a little less sturdy when she did, because Putin was going to have to deal with her. And anything that put her in a more compromising position as the president of the United States would have benefited uh, Putin's strategic, uh, strategic concerns. I think that was part of the reason for it. And another reason for it is that they were just, you know, they were looking to add more chaos into the election and to to delegitimize the election, to ramp up the kind of uh, standard Kremlin tactic to to ramp up the the um, distrust, the, uh, you know, the, the kind of sort of social corrosion that um, you get through uh, lack of trust, lack of legitimacy. So that that was occurring on both sides. You know, the ad purchases, the famous Facebook ad purchases, which added up to something like $100,000. It's incredible. Or for both candidates. Yeah. For both candidates. Uh, what percentage of the American public right now, if they found out, if they were they were to learn the truth, that the totality of anti or even pro-Trump or anti-Clinton uh, Facebook ads in the 2016 election cycle added up to uh, low six figures, they would be shocked. Like if you I would imagine if you asked that your average citizen who's kind of, you know, mid information or politically active or pays attention to these things and you told them that that was the I think that they would overestimate it by a factor of at least 10 and probably closer to 100. How much money was spent by Russia or anybody else, um, any foreign actor on those those 2016 campaign ad buys? So this is the this is the really disturbing and destructive consequence of what's gone on in American politics over the last decade. My guess is that if you if you had exactly the scenario you just described, you ask somebody, say, average sort of centrist voter, and they they thought it was a million dollars, they found out it was a hundred thousand dollars, it would have virtually no effect on what they thought. I don't mm-hmm. think that they would be scandalized by discovering that yeah. because what has really gone on in the country over the last decade is an information war. Yeah. And the the information war launched by the people, the Clinton officials, people like John Brennan, uh, you know, the, the people leading the Hamilton 68 initiative, the signatories to the you know, famous open letter uh, claiming Hunter Biden's laptop was a likely Russian disinformation operation. What those people have done is to um, rope into their own side, that is the the side that views any moderating effort to say that Trump was something less than a a Putin agent as a full-throated endorsement of Trump on the one hand, and as a sort of breach of uh, party loyalty on the other hand that's the the effect of the information war has been to make it so that people are less and less susceptible to 
corrective uh, efforts, less and less susceptible to new corrective information. And that's always true to some extent. This is just mm-hmm. the nature of you know, it's the nature of party loyalty. It's the nature of ideological bias that you tend to ignore the things that don't confirm your worldview. But in this case, you've you've added the nuclear option to that. You've made it so having accused a sitting president of the United States, having falsely accused a sitting president of uh, being a Putin agent, and then having spent the subsequent four years launching one information operation after another, uh, targeting the American public to uh, convince them of the most sort of preposterous claims about their own president, it's very difficult now to return to the kind of rational discourse in which, you know, the the entry of new evidence can change minds. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, that happens for some people. Um, of course, people still do change their minds, but the the evidence itself seems to be less and less potent. And that's because, um, you know, the, the currency of truth has been debased. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. So let's look at some of the other actors in the traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. This this new information war. Um, One who is a member of the security, national security establishment, Clint Watts. He figures prominently into this, uh, uh, into these battles. Um, How did he arise here and and what has his impact been? Clint Watts is a a former uh, FBI official, also a former U.S. Army officer. And he really came to prominence in 2014 during exactly that period that we were talking about earlier in the program as a proponent of hybrid war theory and a guy who was uh, really, you know, helping to push a certain narrative in the media. I shouldn't say push a narrative that actually that's a little bit too cynical, perhaps. You know, he was a counterterrorism expert who was uh, offering a framework to understand how ISIS was using social media. Russia was using social media. I don't think he was a, a plant who had, you know, I don't think that the counter disinformation regime is a sinister plot led by Clint Watts. That's why I I pulled that back a little bit, I think. But I think he was a guy who was prominently explaining that, including to me, uh, by the way. You know, I was at the Daily Beast at the time. I wrote some pieces on this. I went back. I had been in Iraq in 2006, 2007 as a soldier. I went back as a reporter in 2014 and wrote a, a bunch of articles about the ISIS campaign. And I was interested in the social media aspect. And Watts was one of the people who I took very seriously because he's smart and well-spoken. And what he was saying was convincing. In retrospect, I think that he was wrong about a number of very critical things. But uh, but he had a way of explaining this. And he was early 
to seize on the significance of social media. So that's how he came to prominence. He, he came to prominence talking about ISIS and Russian social media campaigns in 2014, 2015. Then in 2016, he started writing articles, having already sort of established himself as a counterterrorism expert, specifically as a uh, sort of social media expert within the counterterrorism field. He then wrote uh, a, a number of articles, including one uh, very influential article for the Daily Beast, in which he lays out the case that the Kremlin's influence operations on social media using Twitter accounts principally and Trump aligned uh, supporters on Twitter have become indistinguishable, that their their narratives and their uh, rhetoric has converged such that it's no longer possible to tell the Trumpkins, as he refers to them derisively at the time, apart from the Kremlin trolls. You can't overstate, um, first of all, how what 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 an incredibly irresponsible claim that was to make yeah. in the way that he made it and also the the impact that it had because what mm -hmm. it did was to establish this conceptual framework establish this conceptual and rhetorical framework in which um simply because people who were described as kremlin trolls uh, and and uh, people who were uh, described as as Trump supporters agreed on certain things, one was then led to believe that there was some larger ideological convergence and that behind that ideological convergence, there was an even more sinister coordination involving the candidate himself. And there are all of these circumstantial leaps, right? Nothing. The case is never proved at any one of these stages, but there are all of these circumstantial leaps. So you can elide all of these very significant differences, the principal difference being that you're dealing with U.S. citizens protected by the Bill of Rights of the Constitution in one case, and foreign actors in another case. So even if they are agreeing on certain matters, it doesn't matter if they're agreeing in terms of whether the the, the rights of those U.S. citizens are still protected, they still have free speech. Even if they are agreeing with the Kremlin on certain matters, though, of course, if you took it a step further, the supposed convergence between Trump supporters and and Kremlin trolls and Kremlin information operations was always fairly superficial. You know, it was, you know, insofar as both were uh, saying the U.S. should get out of the Middle East and and criticizing NATO and Hillary Clinton. OK, yeah, of course, there were convergences, but that doesn't mean that the average Trump supporter had become indistinguishable from the average Kremlin operative. That was an absurd claim to make. But because you're dealing with these digital phenomena that operate at some distance from provable reality in the first place and involve you know, anonymity and questions of what's a bot, what's a real person. There are all these, the, these, all of these aspects of the argument built in that involve simulation and dissimulation and that seem, as is often the case when people talk about things occurring online, that make it easier to elide certain empirical and factual matters that might 
really ground things in reality and might get in the way of some of these broad and sweeping assertions. But nothing got in the way in in, in the event. Nothing got in the way. This uh, article that Watts published um, sort of set the stage. It was foundational in much the same way that the the Brennan ICA was foundational in establishing this idea and this rhetorical framework in which Trumpkins and the, the Kremlin were aligned. The next step occurs in the summer of 2017 when Watts uh, reemerges publicly as the figurehead of this initiative called Hamilton 68, which presents itself as a, a dashboard on Twitter tracking Russian influence online. So 2016, Watts, and he's actually the co-author, along with a, another uh, guy named Andrew Weisbrod. In 2016, they co-write this piece saying Trumpkins and, and the Kremlin are have converged and are indistinguishable. And then in 2017, a year later, Watts reemerges as the figurehead of Hamilton 68. And Hamilton 68 claims to be in possession of a list of 600 confirmed Russian uh, accounts on Twitter, and that having in its secret accounts, it'll never disclose the names of those accounts, and that being in possession of this list of accounts, it can then trace out this much larger network of Russian influence. And uh, as it turns out, and we know this because Twitter executives did their own reverse engineering of the list, since Hamilton 68 would never release it, it was largely a list of, um, you know, sort of conservatives, uh, normal American accounts. That that was the the, the claim that this was the that you know the secret document that they were in possession of was like a a, a hardened uh, Russian agents was disproved by uh, Twitter officials when they reverse engineered it, but it was used to claim that a much larger network of people, much larger than 1600, 600 rather, was spreading Russian propaganda, was acting as uh, sort of fellow travelers and useful idiots for the Russians by spreading their message. But it was all, in, in the words of uh, Twitter executive Yoel Roth, it was bullshit. Um, yeah. And th this is the term that he uses in internal emails that are only disclosed years later in the Twitter files uh, that Matt Taibbi publishes. But so that's Clint Watts. Clint Watts is the guy who, through uh, his early work as a social media and counterterrorism expert, and then even more importantly, through his role at Hamilton 68, becomes sort of the leading counterterrorism analyst, the public face of the idea that Russia has infiltrated Twitter and that now you can't trust essentially, you know, it's like a sort of red scare paranoia. Yeah. You, your, your neighbor red. might be a communist agent, right? You're the guy you're interacting with on Twitter. If he doesn't immediately pledge allegiance to uh, John Brennan and, and uh, whatever neoliberal pieties might be a, a Kremlin agent. And, this is what Watts helps to establish. It's worth saying, just in summary, that um, you know Watts was put in this position with the help of even more prominent people. So Watts is not ultimately is the guy Michael leading Hayden? this effort. Michael Hayden writes about Watts in his book. And Michael um, Hayden, and former CIA director. 
former CIA director. I think he was also former NSA director. Uh, Hayden is Hayden is a principal architect of the uh, mass surveillance in the United States. He's one of the most senior intelligence officials in the country's history. He's an incredibly powerful and important figure who champions Watts, who essentially compares him to to Paul Revere sounding the alarm (laughs) and and Hamilton 68 itself is an initiative of an organization called the Alliance for Securing Democracy Mm -hmm. that emerged in 2017. And again, it's one of these, just like the International Fact-Checking Network, it presents itself, it has this sort of veneer of being, you know, a civic-minded, nonpartisan, we're just here to protect the integrity of America's elections and keep, keep Russian influence out, which is on its face, you know, a laudable goal. We don't want foreign interference in elections, but is in fact, uh, you know, it's a partisan information operation because the whole goal of it is to dramatically exaggerate the scale and impact of that Russian influence to discredit Donald Trump, delegitimize Donald Trump and restore to power the kind of um, centrist technocratic establishment that Trump threatened and that they represented. And so you make an, uh, an interesting point going back to Watts about, you know, uh, essentially a lot of uh, for the average citizen out there trying to make sense of all this, they uh, a lot of people kind of default. And I don't necessarily blame them at first for the notion that there is some incredibly sinister coordinated effort by wrongdoers who who want to see negative results. Right. That, that want for one reason or another are incentivized for the corrosion of trust in America's institutions and, uh, uh, it, you know, impact to the body politic, what have you. Um, and a lot of that is uh, is leveled against George Soros. But I think people are, are, are out kicking their coverage and not understanding that this is just basic careerism. If you're Clint Watts and you're you know now building a name for yourself as a counterterrorism expert, well, a, a counterintelligence uh, uh, expert, well, your career is going to be helped the more that we need counterintelligence experts, right? The more uh, that there's foreign interference in elections or the more that the social media landscape is contaminated by, uh, uh, by those of ill intent, the more you need to, uh, someone's going to need you to comment on it, to be part, to run uh, NGOs, to run institutes about this. And he's just really trying, a guy like Clint Watts is to a certain extent um, inflating these threats because it helps his career, because it gives more reason for people to put him on MSNBC and things of that nature. Or otherwise, um, in this vast, uh, vast, once again, uh, national security and counterintelligence apparatus that originally arose out of those those learnings from the battles against ISIS in 2014, um, it, it increased the likelihood that he's going to get one of these high, high-ranking positions at some point. And I think people are overlooking how much it's just basic, it's it's basic career leveraging by a guy like Clint Watts. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that has, that'll take you 90% of the way in understanding what's going on. There might be another 10% with people like Hayden, who's the, you know, the actual former CIA chief who championed Watts, where there's something beyond careerism. There might be some grander strategy for a, a very small group of people. But for the vast majority, yeah, it's exactly right. It's about pre- protecting institutional position. And even with somebody like Hayden, by the way, it's not that grand strategy might not be nefarious on its face. Um, it might be nefarious on its face. But um, but uh, I just mean that there's something beyond that basic default to um to self-interest and and class self-interest but for 90 percent, certainly that's the case and 
you know, that has a very powerful effect on how you see the world. So Absolutely. it's not just it's not just that uh, for somebody like Watts or even lower level counterterrorism uh, officials that they're incentivized to hype the threat to the public because they know that it will expand the budgets. They themselves are more likely to perceive the world in those terms yes. yeah. because it's it is they filter uh, what they understand of the world through their self interest. Mm -hmm. um, so it has that kind of mutually reinforcing quality. Clint Watts doesn't necessarily know that he's lying, or at least like if it's something, it might be something that he can repress just enough beneath his his conscious mind that he believes. Wait a second, there is, I have some plausible deniability. There is there is a chance that I'm correct about what my insinuations or claims about where this information is coming from. And although it serves the uh, uh, what whatever reasons for skepticism there are, I'm going to dismiss those, um, even though they they do kind of bubble just below my my conscious mind. Yeah, I think by all accounts, that's probably the case. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly, certainly pleasant enough in my interactions with him. He has a reputation as being, a, you know, on an interpersonal level, a, like a decent guy. So I don't think that uh, I don't regard him as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite harsh uh, in my analysis of of what he did in the piece. Fairly so, I think. But it's none of it's personal and none of it has to do with his personal motivations or character. Mm -hmm. um, and to that point, the commingling between the, the professionalism of the national security uh, apparatus and the social media companies is, I mean, I think people don't quite understand how, you know, how filled in the executive ranks of the big tech companies are former members of the national security uh, uh, industry um, uh, that also pops up. In the Hamilton 68 episode, as you mentioned before, Yoel Roth, kind of known as no, no, you know, as a bit of a, a one of the tools of uh, of censorship. Someone was more pro censorship and was bounced very quickly um, by Elon Musk when he took over the Twitter platform. But even uh, even Yoel Roth was uh, uh, willing to express skepticism and acknowledge uh, Hamilton 68 as as what it was, which was full of, was pretty much bullshit. Um, and mentioning that we were allowing real people to be unilaterally labeled Russian students without evidence or recourse. So even a Yoel Roth internally at Twitter knew this to be the case, but they don't actually go ahead and do anything about it. They do not go and alert the public. Wait a second. You know something? We have proof that a lot of the claims about the activity on our platform being manipulated by foreign actors is exaggerated or fabricated. And it's not the case. Another person in a Twitter executive uh, who plays prominently there is Emily Horn uh, internally at Twitter. She had formerly been a director of strategic communications for Obama's National Security Council, then somehow finally her way over to Twitter and she is an executive there and she internally pushes back against the Roths and other Twitter executives who want to be more public or at least more more active and, and lean in on the uh, the falsehoods on com combating the falsehoods of a Hamilton 68 she says no you know we need to be a little careful we can't publicly come out you know we, we don't want to um, be be identified as taking the opposite position from the Alliance of securing democracy this is a bad this is a bad public relations decision by us and you've got a ton of these people who are um, who do envision their future career and their success is bouncing back and forth between governmental positions and and communicative or trust and safety positions at the social media companies who are influencing policy in these decisions out of some seemingly nefarious you know a uh, uh, careerist motivation maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Emily Horn and the decisions internally at Twitter in regards to Hamilton 68. Yeah, well, so Horn, um, 
you know, as you just described, she had a, a background working on the, the National Security Council and she had worked specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, she had worked with journalists um, and foreign policy journalists specifically covering ISIS as part of these counter ISIS coalition activities and, you know, doing communications work for the government in that way. Then she she takes that um, counterterrorism background in the government and she joins Twitter in June of 2017. So it's the timing is extraordinary because um, this is one month before the launch of the ASD that she joins Twitter. The ASD, again, is the the group behind Hamilton 68. So in other words, she arrives at Twitter just in time to interfere on behalf of Hamilton 68 and to, you know, be one of the voices um, saying to people like Yoel Roth, who's on the other side, who's saying, we have to expose this bullshit to be one of the voices saying, no, we can't afford to expose this bullshit. And then after, you know, after that's done, she goes back to work in government. You know, she goes back to work um, in essentially the, the security sector and government. So she goes from government, counterterrorism in government to Twitter and then back to government. As soon as Trump's out of office, she joins the Biden administration. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I've seen zero evidence showing that she was put in place at Twitter in order to affect the decision about Hamilton 68. So I don't have any direct evidence showing that. I do think that it's circumstantially extraordinary. And I also think that the flooding of these companies with people like Horn was you know, precisely to grant the government that kind of leverage so that there was a, a social circuitry built up connecting the higher levels of the national security establishment to the higher levels, decision-making levels at these companies so that when it came time to make a decision about something like Hamilton 68, you weren't talking to strangers. If you were the person in government looking to push a button on something like that, you knew the people, you know, you knew people there. And of course, if you're the person at Twitter who's carrying out that kind of role, Having carried it out, you're then in a good position to get a bump up in the national security hierarchy when you get back into government work. So, yeah, that that is uh, one story. And there are countless others like it. And just, you know, if people aren't aren't familiar, you know, the the classic example um, is also Jim Baker, right? He was the deputy counsel at the FBI and then arrives at, at Twitter as a counsel at Twitter and is one of the people who, um, you know, makes the decision effectively to suppress the reporting on Hunter Biden's laptops. He's um, he goes from the FBI, right, which took possession of Hunter, the, the FBI took possession of the Hunter Biden laptops in late 2019. So all of the question, the supposed investigations into Hunter Biden's laptops, you know, which now have we now know definitively you have to be an absolute, uh, like a real diehard uh, fanatic to not acknowledge at this point that the Hunter Biden laptops were authentic. Um, Biden himself doesn't deny it. In fact, Biden is suing his attorneys are, are seeking damages for people who spread them, implicitly acknowledging that they were his. 
Um, yeah. The New York the New York Times acknowledges it now. The Washington Post acknowledges it now. It's you know so there's nobody who who really casts any doubt on this anymore. But the point is that the FBI knew in 2019 because that's when they took possession of them. So the whole public charade about are these real? Could they be Russian disinformation? Was itself a propaganda campaign? Was itself an information operation led by these 51 former national security officials? Because they knew since the highest level people, certainly the highest level people on that list, um, people like Hayden, people like Brennan, who are still in touch with uh, their national security uh, colleagues, they knew that the FBI had possession of the laptops. They knew that they were real. So this was all a charade about were they potentially Russian Russian disinformation? Sorry, that was a that was a digression. The point is that Jim no, Baker certainly related. Yes. Okay. Good. Uh, Jim Baker, who was who's deputy counsel at uh, the FBI, then takes a job at Twitter and is at Twitter in time to be one of the voices saying we cannot uh, we cannot allow. Uh, the publication of this reporting or, you know, the posting. We can't allow people to post this yeah. reporting about Hunter Biden's laptops because bear in mind, I don't know that everybody knows this, but Twitter didn't just ban public facing posts citing the uh, New York Post's reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. You couldn't DM Holy the New York shit. Post story. DMs were censored. Your private messages containing links to the New York Post reports were censored. That's how deep it went. And Baker was one of the people um, who made that happen. And, and you know something, I think it still has gone un, unacknowledged, the extent to which Facebook was censoring and suspending, not suspend, terminating accounts in or around that time. I mean, let me just, uh, to any of the audience, I think I've mentioned my experiences with this before, but my, I got my Facebook and Instagram accounts taken down four days before the election for posting not a cropped photo just of Hunter Biden's torso. No, no story. No, nothing. Just a crop photo from no genitalia from I was just joking around. I posted a photo cropped of him wearing his dead brother's dog tags while he was having sex with a woman. Um, just just the 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 torso from from the waist up. My account got nuked. Um, I then go to Twitter to mention that my account got taken down. A follower of mine happened on Twitter happens to mention, hey, I'm an executive at Facebook. I don't know why that happened. I really like your stuff. I'll get your account reinstated. That person gets my account reinstated. Just so happens I'm going to Austin that week. Which office does he operate out of? He operates out of the Austin office. Well, hey, let's go get a drink. I go and get a drink with this individual and he starts giving me some of the inside baseball on what's going on at Facebook that they are nuking accounts left and right. Just an overwhelming censorship campaign of not just censoring the stories, but literally not suspending temporarily, not, hey, take down this post, new terminating accounts out of nowhere. And that the, the, the big controversy internally, because obviously the the uh, the the employees and executives at, at Facebook, they talk to each other about these things and they're not all inside the inner corridors of power of, of where these decisions are made. And the big problem is that the employees at Facebook are from their social circle are getting so many incoming requests of, hey, why did I get my account taken down that it's causing chaos within the company? That within Facebook, they're like, wait a second, what's going on? Because I just got, uh, I've never, you know, one, maybe once a year I get a, a friend or someone who gets their account suspended or terminated who comes to me and says, hey, you're the only person I know who works at Facebook. What happened with my account? 
And each all of these people are getting bombarded with internal. Hey, a friend of mine got their Facebook, their their Instagram account taken down. A friend of mine, what they their a whole their accounts about holistic uh, wellness. Why did they get their account taken down for posting something about Hunter Biden or God knows what? And it's overwhelming. And if you didn't know someone at Facebook, you weren't getting your account back. Right. Right. I only I mean, but I I know a few people over there. I probably would have gotten my account back after a week or so. But, hey, it certainly helped that I had a fan who worked at Facebook who happened to also follow me on Twitter. Thank God he did. But I saw some of the internal communications at Facebook about this stuff. I mean, you could anything related to Hunter Biden, period, that that possibly any photo, I, I guess, whatever facial recognition or image recognition technology they had over there could identify if the the image was of Hunter Biden. And if you posted about it, your account was done. And if you didn't know someone at Facebook and Instagram, you, know, you had to go start another Facebook or Instagram account, like period. And and it's still, you know, I had that personal experience, but it just speaks to what was going on that week. And I think that people still haven't quite acknowledged the chaos and the insanity of what was going on in and around the Hunter Biden story. And guys, you can, whatever once would say, oh, well, who knows what, what that, if that would have swung the election? Well, the, the lengths to which they went to to censor it certainly suggests they thought otherwise. I mean, it's a it's a mass crime, whether or not it affected the election yeah. is a it's a, a crime of unbelievable proportions, yeah. regardless of what effect it had on if it had zero effect on the election, if it didn't change a single vote, uh, a campaign of mass censorship led by U.S. intelligence agencies at the direction at the direction, as we now know, of Biden campaign officials in order to suppress legitimate reporting and legitimate inquiry into the business, the president's business dealings is uh, is a is a a flagrant gross violation of both the spirit and letter of the Constitution. And um, just to, to hammer home the point about Facebook's role in this, you know, Zuckerberg said in his appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast that the FBI came and visited him in the summer of 2020 and told him, hey, there's going to be some kind of just just in case people think like that this was a series of errors or that this was just sort of over in good faith, overprotectiveness. No, no, this was a deliberate information operation. This was a deliberate operation. The FBI, go watch Zuckerberg's appearance on Rogan. The Mm -hmm. FBI visited him in the summer of 2020. They essentially told him what was happening, preparing him, giving him the, the early indication so that he would fall in line when it happened. You know, they said to him, there's going to be some kind of Russian disinformation uh, involving Hunter Biden. And so that was the forewarning saying, you know what to do. Don't get out of line. Remember what happened last time. Yeah. Remember, remember, Mark, what happened last time when you said that um, Facebook hadn't been Facebook didn't swing. You, you remember the pressure campaign we led against you the last time. Remember the coup from your own employees. Remember the uh, the, the whistleblower campaigns that you've had, these fake uh, sort of astroturfed whistleblower stuff with Facebook. So, you know, it was a it was a warning. It's this is this is it's a crime. There's no other way to describe yeah. it. It's not yes. overzealousness. It's not merely censorship in a in a you know censorship might be bad enough but it's not necessarily mm-hmm. illegal this is election interference um, yeah 
Yeah, no, and it's continually framed once again. It, but they always go for the plausible deniability that, hey, um, you know, as a lawyer, I'm going to put it in terms of probable cause, right? And the thing that, you know, you we, we had probable cause to believe that something was going wrong, that this was Russian disinformation, and we made a mistake, and we screwed up, and we ended up being factually incorrect, but it was done in good faith um, based on some standard could qualify as probable cause. Nothing could be further than the truth. They knew they either they were either one, grossly negligent, or two, willful in their, uh, in, in their dismissal of facts to the contrary. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew it was manipulative, and they knew that it had no factual basis. And if they, to the extent that they didn't act actually uh, consciously know it was close enough that they should have known and they had they had no justification in doing what they did whatsoever. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. We've been framing this all in terms of a lot of the ongoings between Donald Trump um, and his election and his administration and the, the, his attempt to get reelected in 2020. Um, but this really kicked into high gear, as you mentioned, in regards to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. As you mentioned, by 2020, the counter disinformation machine had grown into one of the most powerful forces in American society. Then the COVID-19 pandemic dumped jet fuel into its engine. Uh, I think a lot of people, uh, certainly a lot of people who may be listening to this podcast right now would agree with that. Um, many people who might have not been as sympathetic to the claims of of interference or um, malfeasance on behalf of the social media companies and censoring things around Donald Trump, and then were really given a wake up call when COVID nineteen came around. Um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about how this apparatus was what uh, was you know put into action um, against the American people and against the truth in regards to the pandemic. So having built up this censorship apparatus, and what's really in information control apparatus based on the threat of foreign disinformation. You know, that's where it all starts. It's Russia, it's foreign disinformation. But having built this machinery, having emplaced government regulators uh, and FBI agents inside of the social media companies, you now have a machinery that can censor anything, that can control information uh, about anything. And COVID is the next pretext it's the next emergency. It's the next existential threat. And there's a kind of seamless transition. And this is when you get the sort of major uh, rhetorical pivot from disinformation to misinformation. Mm -hmm. And then you have the, the later edition of malinformation, yeah. meaning referring to information that is true, but is, you know, used to do harm. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a like. Even all of my adolescent years reading dystopian science fiction novels hadn't prepared me for just how on the nose this was all going to be. Yeah. Um, but it's as just, you mentioned, uh, as you say, dystopian in principle, totalitarian in practice. That's right. Um, and that's exactly what it was. And uh, so so you have the Election Integrity Project which is, you know, put together for the 2020 election and is this government-directed effort that brings together these non-governmental uh, organizations. Graphica is one of them, which is this, what started out as a um, digital analytics counter-messaging uh company with DARPA grants that was involved in the counter ISIS campaign 
Stanford University, the Stanford Internet Observatory. Um, there are four organizations that come together. They form the Election Integrity Project, and nominally they're supposed to be overseeing the uh, 2020 election to ensure that under the auspices of the GS- GEC, they're overseeing the 2020 election, uh, the the messaging, online social media messaging about the 2020 election to prevent Russian disinformation, to prevent disinformation and misinformation. And um, it's just hard to compress all of this. But basically, what it, to give a very short uh, history of how this came to be, in 2017, in early 2017, as one of his last acts in office, the outgoing head of the Department of Homeland Security, Jed Johnson, declared that um, he was placing all electoral infrastructure in the United States under the direct control of the Department of Homeland Security. And he did this under the uh, claim that it, that there was a threat to the electoral infrastructure. And so he had been trying to push this through for months. There was significant uh, pushback from local stakeholders who said this would be a, a usurpation of their, their local political autonomy and sovereignty by the federal government. And the way he got around that resistance was he just did it unilaterally right as he was leaving office. Having done that, having said that now all electoral infrastructure in the United States is directly under the control of the federal government, Department of Homeland Security. The next move was to say, and by the way, the internet counts as critical electoral infrastructure. So in other words, the the internet was placed through this administrative coup, through this bureaucratic stroke. The internet itself was placed for the purposes of ensuring electoral legitimacy protecting the electoral infrastructure was placed under the control of the federal government. Then that is the sort of framework by which the election integrity project uh, gets, uh, you know, sort of stood up, even though it's, it's technically conducted through these non-governmental third parties like Grafica and Stanford, that is what provides the, the basis for this electoral election integrity project which is supposedly a nonpartisan watchdog uh, group that's like like poll watchers, right, to ensure ensure election integrity, but is in fact delivering um, lists of censorable narratives, censorable information to the social media companies. And what it is declaring, you know, because now we've gone since 2017, when the electoral infrastructure gets placed under the control of DHS to 2020, we've gone from disinformation, which is explicitly foreign, to misinformation, which can be coming from American citizens, to malinformation, which can be true information coming from American citizens, where not only do they not intend to lie, they're not lying, they're making true statements, they're just, you know, ostensibly being... Uh, you know, contextualized in ways that are misleading. So, so that's how you get the the framework of uh, NGOs, uh, universities, private organizations coming up with these mass censorship orders through the auspices of the federal government to deliver to the social media companies. Right, all of that then gets shifted 
from the elections to COVID in what's called the virality project. So, uh, so that's the transition that occurs. And there's new budgets uh, for the virality project. There's a new existential threat to rally the troops to the cause, because if we don't combat vaccine misinformation, you know, tens of billions of people are going to die, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that that's the transition that occurs. And it's all once again at sim- similarly about making messages subservient to whatever is put out there through neoliberal uh, 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 international institutions such as the World Health Organization. Right. I mean, the initial I think the the initial um, uh, suspicion around the government messaging or the 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 social media apparatus messaging on covid was that, wait, wait a second. Why is everybody censoring the notion that this might have leaked from a lab? Um, and why is the World Health Organization not conducting an actual experiment into to the origins of this virus and why is the messaging around that seem kind of smell like bullshit for, for lack of a better term and then very much you know turned out to be bullshit um, and it, it seems that I think Facebook at one point um, was uh, crafting its censorship and moderate content moderation policies uh, that anything that ran contrary to the messaging of the World Health Organization was was deemed taboo or uh, uh, persona non grata um, and, and that it, it that's what it continually is is that this subservience to whatever the whatever institution can be uh um you know that that whatever institution seems to be the expert uh or at least the consensus expert are based on some false consensus of whether whatever the topic happens to be this organization whatever message they land on is the message it is the correct message and we are going to censor anything that seems to uh that would would uh, threaten to impeach that message yeah precisely because the Social media companies themselves just want to protect their own power and position. And the way that they do that is by satisfying the ruling party. And so, uh, or satisfying the um, the sort of ruling establishment, if you're looking at it in a, in a on a global scale. So that it's like Facebook doesn't have a particular vaccine agenda. Twitter doesn't have a, you know, Twitter is not looking to take sides on lockdowns. They want to maximize their user base. They want to maximize their freedom of maneuver and maximize their profits ultimately and the data that they have access to. So, so where then do the do the judgments, do the decisions on what counts as misinformation and disinformation come from? And it comes from the mouthpieces of the ruling establishment who the social media companies have to satisfy in order to protect their position. So, yeah, they defer to the WHO. They defer to whomever at any time, even if those organizations are, you know, reversing their positions every six months. Right? You could take mass masking as an example. You know, it's one month. It's it's misinformation to say that um, people should go buy masks. Right. Because as as Anthony Fauci later admitted, you know, he had lied to the American people about the efficacy of masks. Mm -hmm. This is what he said in his interview with The New York Times that he ran contrary to all his messaging and statements about masks prior to 2020. Right. Because, um, you know, there was a shortage of N95s and they need to hoard them. So but but what that means is that if you're in a position of having to determine who should get censored for violating misinformation and disinformation um, protocols that it's 
you don't want to have to make that decision for yourself. That creates tremendous liability. So you want some kind of um, organization to to be in the position of having to make those decisions. And it just, it, it ends up being uh, a pure subservience to, um, to the ruling party interests is one way to look at it, or another way to look at it is an unchecked uh, extension of the power of the ruling establishment vis-a-vis the communications platforms where there ought to be free and open discourse taking place, but where instead whatever these uh, organizations say is the rule of the land, even if it's changing uh, constantly. Mm -hmm. And the COVID phase presents an interesting example because it, it, it existed essentially, you know, maybe 40% under the during the tenure of Donald Trump, and then about sixty percent um, once he was removed and Joe Biden was was placed in office, um, and so in looking at the the social media companies as quasi governmental actors because they're taking instruction um, and and operating at the mandate of you know whoever's talking to them from the government. I mean, uh, obviously that kicked into high gear once the the vaccine was out was available and Joe Biden was in office. Um, how and you could tell us in a little bit about of this was revealed in the Twitter files. Um, in the the government and the Biden administration creating its blacklist uh, and and identifying people it considered uh, enemies of the state in terms of COVID misinformation or disinformation. One very prominent one being Alex Berenson, who had his Twitter account um, uh, suspended for making an entirely accurate statement uh, about the vaccine not preventing transmission. Although, you know, I think Berenson uh, did make a lot of other inaccurate statements, but those weren't the ones that he had his account removed for. Um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about those um, about Twitter uh, during the the vaccine phase of the pandemic, operating at the behest of the Biden administration. Yeah, you know, I don't have all of the details at my fingertips right now, but essentially, it, it, the Biden administration was delivering censorship orders directly. It had set up. There were both the federal agencies that set up um, these task force task forces inside. Um, social media platforms, but the White House was also sending censorship lists. And, um, you know, Biden famously made a public statement about the, was it the disinformation dozen, which was uh, uh, the people who are supposedly, the small group of people who are supposedly responsible for spreading the vast majority of vaccine-related disinformation. Though, once again, like what what counted as this vaccine disinformation was a political determination, not a mm-hmm. medical or scientific determination. You know, yeah. if you said at the time that vaccines didn't stop transmission, um, as was then the claim of the public health authorities, but we now know was not the case, that the vaccines did not prevent transmission, that would have qualified as misinformation. And you would have been uh, you, you would have been targeted and potentially censored. Most of the censorship was not taking place through, you know, direct communications from the White House or direct censorship requests from the White House. Most of the censorship was taking place through implicitly the, the, the you know, requests of the White House or the priorities of the White House vis-a-vis uh, organizations like the Virality Project, which grew out of the election integrity partnership, which was this large scale, multi-organizational, um, 
set up delivering receiving funding from the government and then delivering these lists of misinformation offenders to the social media companies. That's how most of it was taking place. Fascinating stuff. And and, uh, going back to what the catalyst was, or at least, you know, where you began down the path of um, of wrapping your arms around all of this and putting it together in a way that's consumable for the public in your piece. Um, The apparent counterinsurgency to the counterinsurgency, Elon Musk purchasing Twitter that all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, because once again, even during the Donald Trump administration, the people running Twitter were not sympathetic to him, the causes, um, and were not particularly motivated to hold up for for scrutiny. Um, those who were claiming that, you know, he, that he, he was the vector of disinformation or his supporters were the vector of disinformation. All of a sudden, Twitter now owned by a guy who is not part of the not part of this establishment, who is not on board um, with all this, who is not going to be swayed by uh, instructions or mandates from these NGOs, from these security state actors um, or anybody ap- operating at their behest um, and for whatever the skepticism might have been of what his true intentions were I, I think he the the anticipation that that uh, Elon Musk would be a thorn in the side of these people has proved out to be more true than untrue thus far um, so where do you believe that the where do you believe this all goes now with one of the most if not the most powerful communication platform in the hands of someone who runs contrary to all um, uh, and is not under the thumb of of the neoliberal establishment or its many institutions? I mean, it's a great question. Uh, We we will see. I think that uh, Twitter has become kind of a wild card here. But the the truth is that uh, Twitter's role in all of this has to some extent been um, sort of not blown out of the proportion because it was very significant, but we we have a sort of uh, a bias towards seeing Twitter as the central actor here because we've gotten all this information about Twitter's role through Musk's leaks to, to journalists and the Twitter files. But the truth is that, you know, Google, which we I don't think we've talked about once so far in this conversation, and I, I don't talk about as much in my piece because there's simply less information available about its activities. It's not because Google wasn't engaged, isn't engaged in precisely the same kinds of mass censorship. They've just been smarter about it. Um, they're stealthier <laughs> about it. And it, in fact, they were first to it. Google really pioneered a lot of this sort of stealth censorship. So I think that it continues. It it increasingly becomes a AI-driven uh, effort to capture, you know, I, I put this in quotes, misinformation and disinformation on the wire, as it were, meaning you you develop these algorithms that can detect uh, what has been labeled misinformation and disinformation at scale, and then censor it before it even reaches the public. So rather than having these sort of very labor intensive, uh, what we have now, which are like, you know, factories of NGO workers scanning through social media posts, looking for specific hashtags or narratives or claims, et cetera. And of course, some of this has already been automated, but you'll have a truly automated version. Um, Will there be holdouts? Twitter be a holdout. Um, it may very well be. We'll see how long that lasts. But I think that the the real test is going to be uh, what happens in 2024 with the election 
And unfortunately, we may not know the results of that test until years later, because, of course, all of this will be happening in secret, um, away from the the responsible, uh, you know, what, what should be the responsible mechanisms of democratic transparency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 2024 election, maybe the only election that's going to occur during uh, this interesting kind of transition phase uh, during the the Elon owning Twitter phase of the the story of disinformation and, and social media communication policy. But before AI is really taken off, might be the only one and, and will be yeah. fascinating to see what the results are and not just the, the electoral results, but, you know, how how the so, how social media and Internet communication factor into it. Um Jacob, thank you so much for joining us here today. This was fascinating. And, you know, I think uh, people can, can gauge from this discussion quite the scope of your piece and what you tried, uh, what, you, what you tried to kind of co-opt and, and place in front of people to understand a lot of what has transpired um, in American life over the past seven to eight years and, and the very prominent role that social media plays in it. Um, and so once again, uh, Tablet Magazine senior editor of the piece is uh, a guide to understanding the hoax of the century, 13 ways of looking at disinformation. Jacob, if maybe you want to tell everybody where they where else they can find you. Thank you, Matt. It was a, a pleasure talking with you. Uh, you can also check out, I do a podcast called Manifesto, a podcast with the novelist Phil Cly. You can check me out there as well. Fantastic. Uh, everybody, this is The Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.